Your child that you raised, you have abandoned all because he was sick and you have sinned. So say it now. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Say it louder. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Louder, Daniel. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I am sorry, Lord. I am sorry, Lord. I want the blood. I want the blood. You have abandoned your child. I've abandoned my child. I will never backslide. I will never backslide. I was lost, but now I am found. I was lost, but now I'm found. I have abandoned my child. Say it louder. I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my boy! Beg for the blood! Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. We are dropping in to the work of Paul Thomas Anderson for this episode and a new book by Adam Naiman called Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks just came out. I read it in preparation for this interview. It's fantastic. I think what drew me to this was reading an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson who was talking about um, there will be blood and described the central conflict as a boxing match. And boy, it, I, in my view, it's, it's the best film of the 21st century so far. And Naaman's book is an illustrated mid-career monograph exploring the 30-year career of Anderson, who's been nominated for eight Academy Awards as a writer and director. And this was really interesting. Uh, you know, each of these films just have <laughs> so much complexity and nuance and strangeness. And... Uh, we, we go into all eight of the films and Naaman has laid out the book in the same way that we discuss um, the, the canon of Anderson, which is we go chronologically with when the films take place. And by doing that, he found some really interesting relationships in all of them. But we start off with There Will Be Blood and go from there. And uh, boy, it's fun to drop into Daniel Plainview with Naaman um, just illuminating the landscape of this brilliant artist. So I hope you enjoy Adam Naiman, and I urge you all to get his book, Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks. So I, I really, really enjoyed this book, and I would, oh, I would love to, for, I guess, first get to what was the impetus for you embarking on this project? Well, the impetus was, I mean, in practical terms, it was the um, previous collaboration with Abrams and Little White Lies on the Coen Brothers book, mm -hmm. which I think turned out for us, you know, very well. We were really happy with it, and it seemed to do pretty well as an illustrated monograph. I mean, the Coens are filmmakers who I've been um, hugely passionate about, not just as a critic, but just, you know, in, in my life. I mean, I'm 39, and started coming of age as a movie goer in the 90s and the Coens were a really appealing proposition you know these smart funny edgy filmmakers and um you know i think that as a critic with a byline you don't always get offered to write books or sometimes you pitch them and people don't take them but 
I was very lucky that Abrams wanted this kind of big, deluxe, deep dive into the Cohen's work. And as that was wrapping up, and especially as it was getting reviewed and we felt like we had had a success, we started talking about, well, who do you do next? And Paul Thomas Anderson is also a filmmaker who, I think for critics who came of age in the 90s, occupied a big place, but I'd always been kind of more ambivalent about his work. Um, I think that probably up to the early 2000s, and granted, I was much younger too, right? But I not really loved the films, but always thought that they were major works. I mean, you can't be 17 or 18 or 19 when a movie like Magnolia comes out and not notice it. And I found that as I was getting older, um, movies like There Will Be Blood and The Master especially appealed to me a lot more. So I turned around on him personally a bit and was really impressed with The Master and Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread. And so it just seemed like a nice mix of, you know, a filmmaker who people are interested in, a book that would have, you know, some prospect of actually being being popular or being of interest to people, and my own challenge and how to write about a director who's obviously talented and important and idiosyncratic and distinctive, but who's not someone who uh, I've always loved uh, or not someone who I always respond to. And I thought that that was a nice contrast to the Coens, who uh, you know, help defend any movie that they've made up to a certain point. Whereas with Anderson, how do you write a big, glossy, illustrated monograph that's not just cheerleading? And I tried to sort of fold that into the critical approach I took throughout the book. Yeah, and I, I mean, why don't we start? I mean, if you could just help the audience with kind of... I, I like the chronological approach within um, the corpus of Anderson's work, chronologically following through his eight films. So I thought maybe we could just sort of briefly touch upon each of those yeah. eight chapters that you have, um, beginning with, appropriately enough for a Ring Magazine-endorsed podcast, uh, There Will Be Blood, which Anderson, you quote, contextualized as a kind of boxing match. Yeah, it is kind of boxing match. And I should say, I mean, when we're talking about chronology, it's a specific chronology, right? I mean, the chronology of his career right. is scrambled in what I'm doing because I think the narrative of here's this talented kind of hot shit director and he, you know, he gets more ambitious and more visible with each film and then eventually graduates into this mastery. It's not that it's not true. I think it's that it's been told a lot, right? I don't dispute it, but I thought that the chronology of the movies set in their historical order would maybe bring out some interesting relationships between them and bring out some interesting um, almost unconscious things that he's always working around and working towards. So There Will Be Blood is set you know, at the very beginning. It's at the turn of the 20th century. And so even though movies like uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia were made first in real time, it's interesting to see it as the primal scene of where the Los Angeles and those movies come from, right? Mm. And when you describe it as a boxing match, that is the primal scene is between this uh, avatar of, uh, you know, industrial capitalism, uh, who's a very, you know, towering and powerful character, uh, Daniel Plainview, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, 
and this similarly kind of startup entrepreneur of religion played by Paul Dano. And I think there's a lot going on there will be blood beyond the boxing match or adjacent to the boxing match or other little conflicts that kind of uh, populate the movie. But, it, but, you know, when, when Anderson says it's a, it's a fight, it, it is a fight for the kind of, uh, for the interest and the patronage of this tiny town, which, depending on how you read the movie, um, can be seen as a sort of microcosm of the country or seen as a microcosm of the American character, not just in the early 20th century, but into and including the present tense. Do you see any parallels with, because I remember that experience of seeing There Will Be Blood on opening night was quite something to see that audience react to it, yeah. especially with that very uh, Space Odyssey 2001 yeah. opening uh, spectacular stuff. But it was there was a feeling amongst the crowd that I watched that with that this guy has now stepped up to become the director of, of the era. He seems to be moving, as much as he's drawing from Altman and and it seems like in that film you have a bit of Chinatown with, with Polanski um, yeah. and, and Kubrick, obviously. Uh, it seemed like he's finding his own voice in a way where you have a definitive film um, that, I don't know, it, it, it seemed like him and Tarantino for a little while were always compared to each other, and suddenly I just felt like Anderson was moving into his own domain in a way. Did you have a sense of that? Well, in the book, I, and we'll get to the movie when we get to it in order, but you know, in the book I argue that the turning point, not maybe towards something that's fully realized, but I mean the turning point I think is Punch Drunk Love, which he said he wanted, quote, to be a movie without references, which also isn't true. I mean, Punch Drunk Love has allusions in it, but uh, in terms of really finding his own voice instead of maybe ventriloquizing uh, Scorsese and Altman, I think Punch Drunk Love is the turn. I think There Will Be Blood is sort of like an early peak, right? Yeah. Or as you say, the references are there, but they kind of uh, are in the service of a pretty singular vision. And a movie, too, that I think took some of the things people had found weak in his earlier movies uh, and reconstitutes them into strength. There's this great essay by Kent Jones about Magnolia uh, when Magnolia came out where he said, you know, like, like few American directors that he knew, not just working at the time, but I mean ever, he thought that Anderson understood how movies are supposed to look and feel, but that he was kind of fuzzy on their infrastructures, like how do you get from point to point? Mm -hmm. And then there will be blood. I think that fuzziness is actually kind of the strength of the movie where he has so much space and so much ellipticism in between certain moments and certain motivations. And I don't think it's because it's sloppy or I don't think it's because it's underconceived. I think it's really kind of daring. There's an absolute coherence to that movie. It's a psycho To me, it's a psychologically coherent movie. It's a pretty solid allegory. It's an interesting play with the source material. But at times, the things in it feel like they really come out of nowhere. And I talk in the book about, uh, and, I mean, it's not like a moment that's going to get a meme made of it or be parried on Saturday Night Live or anything like some of the other bits from the movie, but it's when the children jump off the porch towards the end and it cuts 15 years in history. Yeah. And thinking that 
I mean, on the one hand, to your point, yep, that's Kubrick. I mean, that's the bone turning into the spaceship. But there's such delicacy and mystery and intimacy to that moment and the sense of time that's lost. It's not just a gimmick. It's not just a way to push the movie forward. It's this incredibly bold move to suddenly lose time in a movie that has been so focused and almost feels in a weird way like real time, you know, because the scenes are so closed in and intense and there's so many long takes in the film. So, yeah, he's cultivating his own style and that ellipticism opens up even more in The Master and in Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread to the point where he feels now like a totally different filmmaker. Yeah, and similarly, the bone that the ape is clubbing, clubbing something to death, you have the bowling pin that Plainview, Plainview is Absolutely. using to club the priest to death, the Eli. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Kubrick was a, Kubrick was one of the great archetypal filmmakers. He's a Jungian. He makes fun of, he, not fun of it, he has the great line in Full Metal Jacket when the, the, the guy says, how can you have a peace symbol on your helmet and say born to kill? And he says, it's the Jungian thing, sir. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. And I think that Anderson didn't start with those kinds of uh, grand archetypes in his movies. His first few movies are about really specific people. They're much closer to Alban, right? In that sense of this kind sure. of messy, sure. multi-directional humanism. And I think it's fascinating that as soon as he makes the turn to history, a bit like Tarantino, these guys all have the 40-year-old midlife crisis. Spielberg did it too after Temple of Doom. He starts making Color of Purple and Empire of the Sun. They all realize that there's more to history than movie history. There's like history history. Yeah. And I think that Anderson's turn towards history is very fortunately synced with his confidence to be a bit more abstract. And that's where you get a suggestiveness in a movie like There Will Be Blood or to me, especially in The Master, that the early movies didn't have. They had lots of other stuff in them that was great but they didn't have that ability to sort of make you feel like there is something hidden being revealed or unveiled or something really primal being kind of accessed. When you talk about the opening night of There Will Be Blood, whatever your experience was, I remember I didn't see it at night. I saw it at an early morning press screening Mm -hmm. and having that feeling, and I could feel it in the people around me too, the people watching the screen and not really knowing what, they were watching. And when you see movies for a living, even good ones, you're very uh, equipped to pull them apart as you're watching them. Oh, this is good because it's this kind of movie, right? And there will be blood seemed to discombobulate those responses. I think afterward you can put it all back together. But it was just kind of a stunning first watch. Really stunning. And it also reminds me a bit of it seems like there's something central at play in it that's similar to like the Godfather in terms of the intentionality of Coppola, where Michael Corleone is like the soul of America. You have the person who was meant to become a senator by their father, not go into the criminal life. He is a decorated war veteran, and ultimately he is more capable of evil than any of his siblings and you're seeing his descent with all of his justifications for it. This is for my family. Um, but it's just so goddamn entertaining. Whereas in There Will Be Blood, it, you know, this, these two central conflicts of religion and oil and 
the people who hang in the balance who are trying to be convinced of the necessity of these two things to improve their lives. It seems like I felt like there was a certain kind of overlap there, and I distinctly remember the perverse pleasure of watching Daniel Plainview be forced to convert to religion in order to (laughs) further his economic goals, and I It was really profound to watch an audience really enjoy that and laugh a lot at it. It was comical, and, of course, he has a few lines in there that are funny. You know, give me the blood. But when you watch at the end of the film and Eli is forced to to, to admit that he's a false prophet, that it's all superstition, it's all bullshit, and he's been making it up, that audience was tremendously uncomfortable at him having to admit his bullshit. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Eli, stop. Just imagine this is your church here, and uh, you have a full congregation, so. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Say it again. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. I can't hear you at the back. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Well, I'd be interested to know where did you see the film? I saw it in Vancouver, uh, I think the Fifth Avenue Cinemas. It's been a long time since I've been back to Canada, but that's my recollection. No, that's interesting. I mean, at the time, the movie was both, I think, really praised hugely in what we might, and please don't mistake my reasons for this phraseology, you know, in what we might call the liberal media. Uh, You you have a film that comes out at the height of the, the, you know, Bush's re-election. Mm-hmm. In the wake of Iraq, where you have the ready-made oil metaphor, and the almost uh, triumphant secularism of the movie, where you know in the boxing match, capitalism doesn't just knock religion out but beats it to death, I think <laughs> was, was 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 quite satisfying. Whereas I think in a country like the United States, not just in places where the movie was actually shot or takes place, but let's say in certain places in a country that remains divided along these lines. Uh, the film might seem like a big fuck you, you know, or, or or a big insult. And that's the nature of making something so archetypal and polarizing that I think you're right means for this character to signify something larger than just himself. And I, I think that in the context of film criticism and, you know, the canonization of movies, this kind of, I wouldn't call it left wing exactly, but this secular uh, thrust or this cynical thrust to There Will Be Blood um, serves it very well. It's interesting that it's adapted from a book by Upton Sinclair, who was genuinely a left-wing writer and politician. Right. His campaign is actually dramatized in the new David Fincher movie, Mank, which is a huge, a huge part of that movie's plot, is about Upton Sinclair running for the governor of California in the mid-30s. And I think that one of the criticisms people had of There Will Be Blood from the left is that it excavates a lot of Sinclair's explicit politics, right? That the boxing match is more between these abstract ideas of money and religion or commerce and religion. I mean, oil is not abstract. The oil is very palpable and physical and real. But that Daniel represents, let's say, the profit motive. You know, the first time we see his name, he's signing a check, but it's a dissolve to an oil well. So it's like he's signing the landscape, you know, right. and that, and the movie is smart enough 
to not say, well, he's the bad guy or he's the good guy. I do think, though, the casting is really interesting because Paul Dano is completely overmatched. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he gives a bad performance. But the movie works the way it does because he can't really stand up to Daniel. I mean, even when he humiliates Daniel and has him on his knees and stuff, it's completely situational. It's so that Daniel can get what he wants, whereas that ending scene is pretty definitive, right? Yeah. So, so I think for religious viewers, or I think for pious viewers, uh, especially if you lack a sense of humor about this stuff or believe that, you know, all depiction is literal, it's kind of a very insulting movie, which is also why I think some people liked it a lot, because in the United States in the mid-2000s, I think there was this horrible feeling that church and state were aligning in another way. And as a Bush-era movie, it's a pretty vicious critique. I think it is. I, I see that. I see that point for sure. But I would also argue that Plainview explicitly says he hates people, and he does. and he does. And it's incidental that it's you know this oil is, as, to use his phrase, is blowing gold on the town and will allow for agriculture and education and those kind of things. All of that is ancillary to his primary focus of his own acquisition and ascension into power and and more real except estate. Except, of, mm-hmm. except it's an ascension without pleasure. And it's, a misanthropy, and it's a misanthropy that has these interestingly, uh, you know, salutary uh, byproducts. I mean, you really do see he does start a town there, you know? Yeah. And he, and he in some ways, he, he's such a... He's a figure of this kind of historical inevitability, right? It's like California is big and empty. Someone's going to fill it up. And you'd have an interesting movie if he was someone like Noah Cross in Chinatown who really seems to to enjoy his villainy. And in Chinatown, it's the hideous metaphor of rape, right? Like it's not just the landscape, but it's the family and this incestuous patriarch. But I mean, Daniel is asexual, you know? When when Eli's like, you've brought women to this town and been weak and backsliding the audience, like, no, he hasn't, or we haven't seen him do that. Right. I mean, he's such a non-sensual figure, and there's all kinds of stuff, and I try and talk about it in the book, too, because I think this is a constant Manderson. There's a huge kind of sublimated homoeroticism in that movie, and I refuse to sort of, you know, simplify or reduce the movie or, or the practice of criticism by saying, oh, don't you see the point is that everything in the movie is quite gay and that that's where Daniel's frustration comes from, but there is an interesting lack of women in the film, yeah. a lack of femininity at all, and on one level, you can say, well, the lack of women is where you get this brutal, penetrative male approach to problem solving, which is just to beat everything to death. Uh, or it suggests these other closeted, contained energies, which I think is interesting. And it's not isolated or singular among Anderson's films. And that's what I think I mean by it's a stunningly realized movie where the, the really powerful, bold-faced stuff works. But then you look at all the stuff that's missing or you look at the sparseness and you look at some of the minimalism of it. I mean, it's a specific kind of minimalism because the movie's so big and yet it's still very Spartan. You realize that these are absences that he is now confident enough to leave as absences and let you do something with them. Magnolia, which we'll get to, I know, but Magnolia is a movie where you have no space to do anything with it because it gives everything to you. (laughs) It doesn't give it to you. It's like shoving it at you and saying, like, here you go. 
And then there will be blood, I think, the spaciousness, even just the negative space in the frame, the amount in each shot that's open is a really wonderful way to look at that movie as an invitation to the viewer to do some work or at least to have some space to think. And that's what, uh, that's what endeared it to me right off the top. Well, it also seems like with There Will Be Blood that he's leaning a lot more into ambiguity than he has in the past. And a lot of that negative space that's there in, in a very Kubrickian fashion really opens up his power as a filmmaker in a way that I agree is not present when he's trying to fill everything up in that very youthful way he had with such tremendous vitality, especially in Boogie Nights in particular, but yeah, Magnolia even more. But it it is interesting to your point about the homoeroticism that when I, I've listened to interviews with Anderson, uh, specifically two long ones with Mark Maron. I think he did another long one with Bill Simmons. Um, Maron called him on that very point in the next film we're going to talk about, The Master, where he just said, why didn't these two just fuck? I kept waiting for them to fuck. <laughs> and Anderson laughed and said, I think you're right. I think you're right. So he, it's amazing to me how accessible he is when somebody like Maron, who, who's a bright guy and a good questioner, yeah. Um, just directly calls him on the stuff. He seems to appreciate it and doesn't deflect, um, seems quite open to discuss it and, and acknowledge it. Well, that's a mellowing too, because if you read interviews with him early on, he's he's pretty pent up and he's very pent up in a way that I think his his characters can be. I mean, I argue in the book that one of his great talents, and for some people it's not a talent, it's something they don't want to see any more of in the culture, which is fair enough, that he's great at this spectacle of kind of, you know, male rage and self-pity. And you could argue that that's a really vital, interesting artistic subject, or you could argue that it's uh, been the province of, you know, contemplation and artistic production for way too long, and maybe we need less of it. You know, I mean, that's the prescriptive idea. I mean, how many more you know, frustrated, self-pitying, unsatisfied white male characters you need. And Anderson's really thrown his lot in with that as his primary focus, but I think in a very thoughtful way, or when he's at his best, he's very thoughtful about it. And The Master, which is my favorite of his movies, or, or in the top two in the top two for me with Phantom Thread, um, in, in, in The Master, I think, first of all, he's hugely funny about it. I think that movie is outrageously funny as a sort of existential uh, cock-block narrative where all Joaquin Phoenix is looking for is something to stick his dick in, and at the end he finds it, uh, which doesn't solve his problems, but it's certainly a more direct uh, solution than, you know, these different roles and myths he's trying to buy into in society and in the cause. Uh, So, you know, a hugely funny movie, but also a deeply, deeply sad one because it's a text series of, of, of unfulfilled yearning. Um, you know, the Daniel Day-Lewis character in the movie Blood doesn't end up happy, but he is a force who dominates his environment. And the master is what it's like, I think, to feel like you have that vitality and that power in you, but nowhere to put it. Yeah. And so you adopt this subservient role. And yeah, the relationship between... between uh, Quell and Dodd is somewhat homoerotic, but it's all about other things. It's all about all kinds of power and self-recognition and, and self-loathing. And 
uh, you know, the way that he's liberated at the end by realizing he's not answerable to this person is uh, is also fairly inspiring, even within the larger melancholy of the movie. Who Who's having the deeper conversation with Orson Welles and the Master? Is it Philip Seymour Hoffman or is it Anderson? What a great question. I mean, Hoffman is having the conversation by impersonating, you know, Wells without doing an impression, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like every aspect of, of Lancaster Dodd is Wellsian. <laughs> you know? and yeah. But, but, but like he's an Orson Wells without talent, you know, or, or, or maybe, or maybe an Orson Wells who doesn't know that F is for fake. Right. I'm <laughs> into the, 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 the fakery. I mean, I think the conversation and I think the conversation Anderson is having with Wells is, you know, maybe a maybe a, a, a meet cute or a sweet little hello where it's like, oh, you know, here's another major American director who I can kind of converse with. I think that, you know, it's part of multiple conversations that movie is having with John Houston through the documentary Let There Be Light. And, you know, conversations that, again, it's having with with Kubrick, where now the Jungian thing is not just subtext, but it's like what the movie is about, you know? Like these guys, and you see it now with people like Jordan Peterson. It's like if you peddle broad enough archetypes to people, of course they see themselves in them. Right. And and I, I think it's so funny at the beginning when Freddie's looking at all those Rorschach tests and being like, that's a cock, that's a cock going into a pussy, that's a dick. I mean, that's what he wants. Yeah, and in that sense, he's not aberrated, which is what Dodd calls him. He's 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 Dirk Diggler, you know. He's 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 pretty traditional in that sense. His psychological architecture seems pretty screwed up because of the war and because he has this weirdly gothic backstory. I and mean, Freddie doesn't seem like a a really well-adjusted guy, but in some ways, you know, what he wants is pretty basic, and the denial of that thing to him. Uh, for whatever reason, circumstance or bad luck or his alcoholism, which makes it hard for him to perform, um, you know, the cause isn't going to fix any of that. It's, But I think it's about, and you want to look at it as a generational movie, I think it's about the idea that in the early 50s, so many people seemed to be doing well. And so much of American life was about the idea that everyone was doing well, that people who weren't doing well were like, well, what's wrong with me? Right. And what what can fix it? I think the film is so acute without sitting down and actually talking about the thing that I just said of illustrating it and dramatizing it and uh, and, and being pretty profound about it, I think. It's funny because you, you identified at the beginning of the film a couple of things that when we see Freddie Quell sort of sprawled out, not quite in the Jesus pose, but the arms are outspread yeah. and um, you identified that with Jack Nicholson and the passenger flying in a floating trolley above Barcelona's harbor. And it's the first time that we see in that film of Nicholson having freedom without knowing the full backstory or anything. Um, But you identify that that shore where he, you know, there's the big woman made of sand, the sand castle, (laughs) that's the massive woman who seems to dominate the film as a kind of monolith circa 2001. Um, that this liminal space that Freddie occupies at the beginning of the film with Hawaii between the war that he's just come from and the America that he's headed back to, it reminds me a bit of Catcher in the Rye, which 
probably had a lot less to do with a high school student who's having trouble than J.D. Salinger as a World War II soldier that was there at D-Day and was liberating concentration camps and couldn't adjust to civilian life back in New York. Therefore, New York City for Holden Caulfield is itself a liminal space between him and, and a mental institution where he's headed. Yeah, that's really smart. I hadn't thought of Salinger in conversation with the master, but that does make sense. And Freddie is, of course, the opposite of Holden Caulfield in that he's not hyper-articulate, right? Yes, yes. But, the things that, but I think the things that bother him maybe are the same in that he's he's very attuned to phoniness. And that's, I think, his big blinder with the cause is, I think in some ways he's pretty skeptical from the beginning, but he so desperately needs something yeah. that he, 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 he keeps kind of, you know, breaking through his own denial. And in the end, uh, I think even though he doesn't have a lot of other things figured out, he kind of has this thing figured out. that This is not what is going to help him. And he actually even has the grace, which is not a word that you apply to Freddie, uh, to turn it into a joke. It's one of the most wonderful lines Anderson's written when Dodd says something to him about coming back and he says, maybe in the next life, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the dictionary definition of irony, which is saying one thing and meaning another. Mm -hmm. I think for Freddie to be granted by the script, but also within the world of the film, I think to earn through his own observation of the world, uh, the slight distance that irony requires the distance from himself, from getting outside of his head, from getting outside of his torment, is what gives him his kind of literal and figurative happy ending. I mean, the fact that in Manchester, the girl he meets at the bar at the end looks exactly like all the other women in the film. She's sort of this big, tall, you know, sort of brawny redhead, which is the type that the master kind of puts forth in all its casting. You know, it's like he's met his dream girl. But then you cut back to him on the beach and you sort of wonder, you know, has he actually met someone for him or is he just meeting someone who's not going to live up to this, this desperate infantile need for a mother or for an earth mother or for someone to protect him and nurse him and I mean, use the word again to, to mother him. And that opening image of him clinging to the woman on the beach is just so polyvalent. Like there's so much to it. I love the idea that the movie is just a series of variations around that image because it's the kind of filmmaking that I just intuitively respond to, which is a filmmaking of sort of a, a, a more of a semiotic filmmaking than straight storytelling. And that wonderful line that you can't take like straight and what a loaded oh. line that is. Oh, yeah. Jesus. It's it's a, it's a great line. It cuts about three ways, especially considering who's giving it, which is Peg, right? <laughs> right, right. Who who whose whose relationship to Dodd, if you start breaking the movie apart, is interesting. There's an idea of power behind the throne. People have compared her to Lady Macbeth, but even the way she gives him a hand job is, I mean, that's that's a heterosexual act, and it's very much a sort of you know who wears the pants in their marriage, but it's also super gay. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. he's not uh, he's he's not fucking her. She's getting him off. And, and it's in the uh, bathroom of all places. Yeah. Well, I and mean, who likes bathrooms more than Stanley Kubrick, right? Right. Exactly. So, so you can feel consciously or unconsciously this this creative matrix is very strong, 
And it's not about comparing movies because that's a very, you know, uh, or ranking movies. I mean, that's not really a place that I like to go. But even between The Master and There Will Be Blood, I think that space that opens up and There Will Be Blood, it, it expands in The Master. Even though The Master feels like a smaller movie and it doesn't have anything to rival, you know, I drink your milkshake or anything like that. The way the space in that film conceptually is just opening and opening and opening and opening and opening. That was for me the first one of Anderson's movies. Truly, this was in 2012, so well, not that long ago. The first time I saw one of his movies in real time and for the entire two hours thought, this is absolutely great. Mm. Just absolutely, absolutely great. And it remains the most sort of, uh, the most of an epiphany I've had watching any of his movies, which is I just found it to be uh, perfect as as it was unfolding the first time, and it's only gotten better, you know, in retrospect. Well, and so the next film I'd like to talk about, Chapter 3, Inherent Vice, to me yeah. is kind of the most imperfect in many ways, for at least just my subjective take on it. I, I agree that Magnolia, and I've heard Paul Thomas Anderson admit to that he would chop it to hell if he had a chance to re-edit it. Um, but I still think there's lots of just the performances in there. There's several narratives, I think, that could be dumped without taking away from the film. But Inherent Vice, to me, has some parallels with Eyes Wide Shut in terms of I keep coming back to it. Every few months, I feel this urge to watch it again. I like being in its space. I like just being in 1970 with these characters, and I like the performances, but I'm never quite sure holistically what they add up to. I just don't quite know why he was so drawn to it. And it seemed like it, it was a film that got some mixed reviews. It's beautiful to look at. I think yeah. there are really interesting performances, but where, where does it rank for you amongst this, these eight films? I like it an awful lot. And I tried in my chapter to do justice to a few things about it. I mean, to look at it as an adaptation. And I'm always interested in adaptation where filmmakers have reverence for source text and have to sort of coax themselves to, to, to bring out some contradictions. I mean, that's why I like No Country for Old Men so much, because you could say and i don't think people were wrong or misguided for saying like this is just a word-for-word -word transcription i mean the cohen's made that joke too they said well, we just held the book open and copied it but there's all these junctures in there in no country for old men and again i'm very invested in the cohen so i'm looking for this stuff where i'm like no they're asserting themselves through the material too and it's not about like overturning Corbin mccarthy or, or 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 you know changing his book because they don't like it but they find a a place for themselves, I think, within that material. And I think Anderson does, too. I think that some of the changes he makes towards the end, the addition of the scene with Bigfoot, where the two characters, uh, Doc and Bigfoot, seem to meld into one, is very reminiscent of all the big final showdowns in his recent movies, like in Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood and The Master. It's a kind of interesting head-to-head. -head. It's very mirror-image-driven. Uh, uh, and the gap between the hippie and the authoritarian cop kind of disappears. I think the way he stages the ending, where in the novel Doc is alone, and in the movie Shasta is with him, but also maybe not with him, it's kind of the exact same ending as The Master, mm -hmm. where he's got his dream girl, but is she really there? 
Um, I like the way he uses Joanna Newsom as a narrator, giving the movie a female voice, kind of the way that Magnolia had um, Amy Band songs. Yeah, I talk about all this in the book. And also just his uh, completion of this kind of California trilogy with There Will Be Blood and the Master kind of using all three wars, you know, World War One, World War Two, and Vietnam as these absences that you feel in the movies without it ever actually showing them, really. Mm. All of that said, uh, I do think it's a bit of an uneven movie. I think the acting in, is, in it is uneven. I think some of the sequences that feel like they should be absolutely great kind of don't get there. But there's other bits that I think are better than people thought or better than you realize when you're first watching them. And a scene like the flashback to Journey Through the Past with the Ouija board and uh, Doc and Shasta together in the rain and then him coming around the corner to see they've literally paved paradise and put up not just a parking lot, but like a golden fang tower, um, I think is just exquisite. And Martin Short is mesmerizing in that film. Yeah, he's 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 going for it, right? I just enjoyed it. Maybe it's just me, but I thought it was no, so much fun. He's fun. And it's funny because in interviews, Anderson kept saying that this was his his SNL movie or his SCTV movie, but really it's only Martin Short and maybe one or two other actors who actually have that energy. Yeah. Uh, the, the performance that I really like is I really, really like Josh Brolin. I think he's great. Yeah. Uh, as, as, as Bigfoot Bjornson, especially when Bigfoot kind of falls apart, I think the acting is amazing. Yeah, I think you're right. He does steal it, doesn't he? I mean, there are lots of fun performances, but anybody he's going toe-to-toe with, he adds to their performance. It's not just his performance, but he's, he makes everybody else more fun to watch, too, if he's there and he's present observing them. Oh, yeah, he, he absolutely does. And same with uh, Benicia Del Toro, who is just uh, the king, king of the reaction shots. <laughs> I have a friend who says that uh, he has one reaction shot when Doc is at the police station. They're talking to Bigfoot. He thinks it's the funniest reaction shot he's ever seen in a movie. Which again is very subjective, but he's just he's looking at, at Del Toro's exp- expressions and just getting off on them. And I think that yeah, there's a lot of really nicely textured ensemble work in the movie. But I think as time goes on, it will probably remain a bit of a remote curiosity where if you're not invested in the book or if you're not invested in the filmmaker, or if you're not invested in the time period, it's a, it's a bit of a remote movie. And some of my friends who are not, you know, Anderson nuts or who didn't read the book when I've, you know, when they've looked at my book or even just when we've talked about Anderson, that's the one that they feel at, at a, a bit of length from. I think I struggle with it just because of the obvious comparisons to The Long Goodbye and The Big Lebowski, where I just sure. feel like, and and I don't know that they're better films because I agree with everything that you had in the book bolstering like the achievement of Inherent Vice. And I mean, Pynchon is very challenging material, but um, just how much fun The Long Goodbye and The Big Lebowski were on first viewing and after a hundred viewings of, of both of them. Um, I don't know. There's a mood that's there that grabs me a little more than Inherent Vice. I'm not sure where Inherent Vice is trying to sort of trigger me in a way that The Long Goodbye and Big Lebowski both are 
to me much funnier and also there's a pathos to them in different ways that I I'm not I don't know it's more nebulous with inherent vice which isn't to detract from it it's just uh maybe it no no I I I I rec I I recognize what you're saying and I think that you know when when push comes to shove you could argue that a movie that has deep you know, deep resonance for, for, for a smaller group of people or deep resonance for a more, uh, 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 not more attuned exactly, but, 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 but people who, who love it being in the minority, I mean, it doesn't disqualify it. It doesn't disqualify their affection or it doesn't disqualify their interest, but there's also something to be said for, uh, for, for less of a, of a widespread appeal. You know, sure. And I think that The Big Lebowski is a movie that a lot of people love, myself included, and especially. But it's not like everyone loves it for all the same reasons. Yeah, true. And I think The Big Lebowski is a movie that is completely fair to love, just because it has so many fucks in it, and because the because <laughs> because the performances are so outrageous. And silly, and now I see you start sounding like the professor of the Simpsons, who's like, "You won't enjoy it on as many levels as I do." I don't mean it that way, but I think Lebowski, obviously, and I'm sure you know this too, given your frame of reference and your love of the long goodbye and stuff. I mean, the Big Lebowski is one of the most annotated movies like ever made. Sure, it is. It is. It is endlessly complicated and endlessly elusive and brilliant what it's doing underneath that surface. So when you see that there's annual Big Lebowski conventions and people love watching it on on cable and stuff, that's not the true measure of the movie. And there's something to be said that Lebowski can reach a really broad mainstream audience while also being incredibly specific and brilliant. And I don't think Inherent Vice has that top level. I think I think I you're think, quite right. I don't think Inherent Vice is a movie that's going to ever reach a mass audience for whatever reason. But underneath, I think it's as interesting a movie as Lebowski is. It just doesn't have that uh, that top-level seduction to it. Mm, yeah, no, it's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, and another feature, too, just, just in closing about Lebowski, when I think about it, it's a film that ultra-conservatives and ultra-liberals seem to love in equal measure. There's an intersectionality of laughter in it that it seems to be mocking both sides equally that... Yeah. Um, it just like we forget about our politics while we watch it and just laugh and laugh and laugh in a way well, that I can't. Well, well so it, ends, it ends with Walter and the dude embracing. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Death, right. Quite right. Quite death, right. Death, 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 especially of Donnie, who could not be more representative of the middle ground. You know, I mean, he, <laughs> he doesn't know anything. And Walter and the dude, who would have been at each other's throats in 1969. Uh, you know, embrace in the shadow of death because it's they 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 both miss they both miss their friend. You know, not to sideline too much. And also, I'm just keeping an eye on the clock. I've got like about half an hour more, if that's okay. Yep. Yep. Um, I couldn't. I could barely get through Aaron Sorkin's uh, Chicago Seven movie. Oh, but me too. I, I did laugh a lot when Tom Hayden is talking about the Port Huron statement. Right. Remembering the dude talk about he was the author of the original draft of the Port Port Huron statement before the compromised second version. Yeah, right. Which I know may not literally be the funniest line the Cohen's has ever written, but it's pretty funny. Well, shut the fuck Donnie. Shut the fuck up, Donnie is I 
can't get the wrapping paper off that, no matter how many thousands of times no. I've heard it. I am the walrus. That's ex shut the fuck up, Donnie. Hey, post the next round for the tournament. Donnie, shut the fuck up. When do we play? It's Saturday. Near the In-N-Out Burger. Those are good burgers, Walter. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. <laughs> no, no, and, and, and again, I, I, would, I would make the case that it's one of the best American screenplays ever written because not that the movie is visually uninteresting or badly acted. I mean, it's brilliantly acted, but it's the writing. It's the writing. I mean, with, the, with the Coens, it's always the writing, but in that movie especially, it's the writing. They were on some absolute king king shit when they wrote that movie. Yeah. Um, next movie, uh, yeah. this was Boogie Nights, Chapter 4 in your book. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson contextualized this as his revenge film for anybody who thought he wouldn't make it. Sounds a lot like Dirk Diggler as Eddie Adams yeah, it does. yelling at his mother about this great talent, this great appendage that he has that's going to send him on his way. He's got his ticket. Um, this is a film that I'm, I mean, you cover it extensively, but it's one of those films where almost everybody I know who, I, I want to say about half the people I know that love the film will not watch the second half. The moment New Year's happens for 1980, they shut it off. I mean, this is a film that you used a word earlier that I thought was so spot on, and you're right. I mean, this is a movie where vitality is what it has going for it, right? Yeah. And it's a borrowed vitality because mm. the energy is Anderson's. I mean, the energy is the energy of a young guy who's ready to go. And I'm not trying to be glib and, you know, use sexual metaphors to be funny, but that's the movie. It's stamina, it's duration, it's athleticism. I mean, it's like a movie written by 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 Dirk and you know written by Dirk's appendage. I mean that's the first half of the movie. Right. And the big the, the the big question you have to ask is does the intelligence of the film to video metaphor, which I've always liked, you know, that porn is going to go from film to video, which is hugely about I think uh, the death of the new Hollywood and the rise of the sequel mentality and of the and if home video is a way of compromising film aesthetics, like, is that enough to support this punishing, abject, kind of unconvincing cruelty that the second half of the movie is, is focused on? Yeah. And in, the, and in the book, I argue that what saves, I mean, not sort of saving the movie, the movie's, you know, it's a major movie, but it, what, what I always like is in the scene with Rahad Jackson, it swings back so far over the top that the movie gets its energy and its mojo back by becoming like a parody of Scarface, you yeah. know, where suddenly Dirk is kind of sitting there and he's like, what am I doing here? You know? And I think the movie at the same time is like, how do we get here? And then it's just in a big rush after that to end and, and make everything okay. And then right. you start asking yourself, sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, no. I was just, just agreeing with you. I'm just, as I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about scenes in the film that I would like to address. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, at the end, you ask yourself too. You know, am I going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt? Is he leaving, you know, AIDS as a structuring absence, and is he making this this ending seemingly as happy as much of a return to order? Is he doing this satirically? Is he doing this as a cop out? Is he kind of trying to undo the 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 brutality of what 
he he did in the second half, which really does have a feeling of revenge to it. I mean, it's definitely a bifurcated movie, and it's cut in half the exact same way Full Metal Jacket is with this guy, you know, killing himself because of a system that's just not holding up. I mean, it's funny that in Full Metal Jacket, the, you know, pile killing himself is because no one can get off. And in Boogie Nights, it's because all people are doing is getting off. At a certain point, the Macy character is like, I cannot watch my wife, you know, having sex with one more person in front of me. It's like two two different kinds of emasculation, I guess. Yeah. But I feel that in Boogie Nights, everything, I know it's we're going to get to next because of the weird structure of my book, but everything about Hard Eight that's kind of understated and small scale, there's a part of me in Boogie Nights where he's just like, well, I'm just going to do way, way more of it because I can. Mm. The violent and the, you know, the, 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 the enlarging of these small side characters. There's an overcompensatory feeling to Boogie Nights where you really feel him trying to live up to something. And that when, when when the moments work, the movie is electrifying and it's still super fun and funny to watch. I mean, there's some shit John C. Riley does in that movie that's like all-time funny to me. <laughs> but <laughs> well, it's also a pretty exhausting movie. Yeah, I agree. And, and you had an observation. I'd never heard anybody make it before, and I think it is very wise and insightful, which is everybody's made the parallel between Eddie Adams and Paul Thomas Anderson in terms of their respective viewpoints about something to prove. But you identified that also simultaneously, Anderson is also most identifying with Jack Horner, with this ambition of legacy, with this ambition of leaving something behind. And it's interesting that such a young director is already casting his gaze ahead to this is this is me bursting out of the gates, but where am I going to be in 40 years? Like, it seems no. like there's a lot of care taken with the Burt Reynolds character, what he's trying to protect and what he's up against and fidelity to that vision, as misguided as it is, <laughs> given his predicament. But there's seems to be almost the most sympathy for the Burt Reynolds character, Jack Horner, despite the fact that, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this also, is the uh, amazing friction that Anderson had with Reynolds in that role where just Reynolds didn't seem to get it, didn't seem to yeah. appreciate it. Um, that angle is something I haven't heard talked about, is him thinking well, about the director he'll be in the future. Yeah, well, hindsight hindsight sure makes you seem smart, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone in 1997 would have thought well, what if Jack is also Anderson? But it was always sort of implicit, I thought, that Anderson loves the 70s. And in that sense, he's a pretty typical, you know, uh, new, new wave director, kind of Hollywood uh, eccentric director from the 2000s, which I think was Armin White's term for them. Um, you know, I don't think he's just enthralled to the movies of the 70s. I think he's enthralled to the idea of the movies of the 70s and the idea is that these directors were kind of out there you know, taking risks and getting getting repaid for it, not just commercially, but but making movies that were these kind of cultural talking points. And I think casting Reynolds is so funny because Reynolds was always slightly to the side of the respectability of the new Hollywood. Right. The new Hollywood, I don't mean respectability, because obviously a movie like Taxi Driver is an insane movie, but critical acclaim and this idea of, that they were making serious commercial art. I mean, 
even a Spielberg of the populist side or a De Palma on the misanthropic side, you know, these were filmmakers who critics took super seriously. And Burt Reynolds, while he appeared in a couple of like, you know, big movies like Deliverance, he was always seen more, or, you know, he never got the gravitas of even a Clint Eastwood. You know? Right. Right. And I, and I think it's funny that Reynolds was seen as a way he was this big mainstream star who was sort of for the audience that didn't have the attention span for Acula or who didn't have the attention span for, 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 you know, Lumet or something. And then in the, in Boogie Nights, he becomes the stand in, in a way, as you were saying, for sort of, you know, craftsmanship and authorship and artistic ambition. And even though it's as a porn director, which makes it into a bit of a joke, uh, it's, it's a position that I think Boogie Nights takes pretty seriously. And I don't quite know what it was that Reynolds didn't get about it, but I don't think it hurts his performance. Oh, it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite performances that he ever gave. I love him in Deliverance, but it, he's masterful in this film. He he is, and, and you know, it kind of begs the question, you know, how much do editors help performances, or how little does an mm -hmm. actor's intention matter when they're being directed within an ensemble? Because, I mean, I think Boogie Nights would make an awful lot less sense and be way less enjoyable with a different performance. But I mean, Mark Wahlberg has also kind of disavowed the film, which I think shows in a different way his lack of perspective or or, or taste. I mean, you see the movies he's proud of versus the ones he's not, and you can draw your own conclusions. But he's pretty, but, 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 but he's pretty crucial to that movie working, too. Oh, he is. He, it's, a, it's a pretty amazingly, a pretty amazingly unaffected performance, I think. Well, so let's say Anderson gets the, the actor he wanted for the role and gets Leonardo DiCaprio starring in it. How does that film change? I think it becomes in some ways less harder. It becomes harder to believe, mm -hmm. you know, there's an alternate history where Leonardo DiCaprio wrecks a lot of pretty interesting movies. Cause and that's not because he's a bad actor. He's a good actor who I like a lot. I think he got an Oscar for his worst movie ever, but that's beyond that. I, I like Leo, but Leo was going to play Bale in American psycho. And that would not have been as good. Mm -hmm. He was going to play Damon and the talented Mr. Ripley, and that wouldn't have been as good. I think DiCaprio has to be cast in a very particular range to be effective, right. and I don't think that Boogie Nights would have been it. That's interesting. I I wasn't aware about that with the talented Mr. Ripley. That's one of my all-time favorite films, and it, it seems I can't imagine anybody but Matt Damon playing that role yeah. with how good he was. Well, I, I, I have a... I have a pretty good off the record story about that, which I can share with you at another at another time. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think DiCaprio. It's funny because the whole Boogie Nights all revolves on Dirk being desirable, but I actually think that DiCaprio is too beautiful. Yeah, no, I think I remember Vincent Gallo. I think he meant it as an insult. Said that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was the best looking actress in Hollywood. <laughs> that was quite yeah. Well, I mean, charming appraisal. Gallo being a pretty disgusting right wing, whatever you know, I'm sure he, I'm sure he didn't mean it nicely, but it is a funny joke. It is a funny joke. Um, why don't we go back to Hard Eight in terms of it being Paul Thomas Anderson's first film? A lot of struggle with that film, getting it made, yeah. not his title. 
which is something that those of us in publishing certainly can appreciate, where I have to always defend a, a 50-word subtitle for books. Um, uh, what did you What did you like most about this film? Well, sorry, what did I? What did you like most and appreciate most about this film in terms of it being um, the deep of this talent? The the sublime, the sublime use of Philip Baker Hall. Yeah, you know? he's fabulous. The, the 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 spartanness and the wit to to put Hall in that movie and to build a movie around a guy who's never really been at the center of anything except for the one man show of Secret Honor, mm-hmm. which is a great film uh, where Hall rants and raves as Nixon for ninety minutes. Have you, have you seen Secret Honor? Yeah, no, only because Paul Thomas Anderson referenced it right. when he was yeah. interviewed, and and yeah, and I love Philip. Yeah, he, oh, what a, his what a, what a, is amazing. What an amazing actor. So I love him at the center of Heart Eight, and I love Philip Seymour Hoffman's sort of short sequence where I think he's playing the aspects of Sydney, maybe that he he wishes to to suppress or to escape, or that he doesn't want to be with a person like that or see a person like that in him. I think that their showdown is a really great Anderson sort of duet confrontation scene in a way. And I think it's a really nicely shaped and told sort of genre film that keeps the genre elements to a minimum that they really had impact when they happen, like the big outburst of violence at the end where, you know, Sidney kills uh, Sam Jackson's character uh, like, I, I don't know if anyone would really have said in 1996, the guy who made this is going to become, you know, our 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 John Ford or our Orson Welles or something. Right. But you can see a lot of the things that he would become good and better at. And I think on its own terms, it's a pretty emotionally satisfying movie. I love the double mind or the 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 double feeling in the phone conversation at the end where he says something completely open and honest. Yeah, John, um, uh, there's something I need to tell you. It's something you need to know. It's important. I need to tell you. I love you, John. I love you like you were my own son. So it's totally honest, but he doesn't tell him the other thing, you know? Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, oh, you know, by the way, I killed your dad. <clears throat> and so you find yourself wondering, you know, is that an act of cowardice or kindness? What is the better thing for him to do in this case? And then that little shot at the end of his uh, cuff, like, with the blood on it, and the idea that some stains don't wash off. So all pretty sophisticated for a first movie. Yeah. Well, just for sake of time, why don't we move to Magnolia? Um, sure. This film in particular seems poignant given that Paul Thomas Anderson's father had just died in a very similar way to the Jason Robarts character in the film. Um, And he just threw everything, according to him, threw everything he had at this film, and you get three hours. Uh, This was one I also remember going to opening night and an audience just being overwhelmed and I think pissed off at the same time. It is a... It is a film, as he says, he said this, he said it's made without a delete button. Hmm. And it's not that I want to leave it at that. I mean, we can talk about Magnolia a bit, but it kind of tells you what's 
inspiring about it and what's aggravating about it, right? I mean, yeah. you say putting everything in one movie, and my take on that film now is it's it's not explicitly about the end of the millennium. It's not a Y2K movie, but that's where I think <coughs> its power comes from. You know, it's a movie where you're just waiting for what is going to happen to bring this all together. And is it going to be a disaster? Because of the way it's structured like a 70s disaster build. In the same way that Altman Shortcuts was, except, you know, Shortcuts is... Shortcuts is sort of the model and the template for Magnolia. It's also got, I think, a slightly different, more cynical view of human nature. I think Shortcuts is a movie that's, you know, pretty mean-spirited, and I think Magnolia is pretty open-hearted, maybe yeah. to a fault, you know? But um, Magnolia is a movie where you're just sitting around going, well, what's going to happen? Not just what's going to happen next, but, I mean, what is going to happen? What can possibly bring these characters together? And it's both to the movie's credit, and I think to its not disgrace, but maybe to its shame, that the only thing he can really come up with is, you know, love, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it, sounds, it sounds like I'm being a dick when I say that, but this is a three-hour movie that really hinges on a 10-year-old saying to his dad, I need you to be nicer to me. Yeah. But there's, you know? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it sort of showcases, you know, this is him having carte blanche to not have an editor, to not have anybody look over his shoulder to say, you know, enough here or whatever. As I say, there are a couple narrative threads where I like some of the performances, but I don't know why this is in a movie this long because the payoff, you can just see it from a ways, from a, from quite a distance, is not going to be very meaningful to you, but it clearly is to him. And so I guess on that level... Besides the death of his father, Ern, Ern, for people who don't know, Ernie Anderson was the great Goulardi and was friends with a lot of top-shelf comedians, was the voice for um, The Carol Burnett Show, and, and yes. very very prominent voice on television, which is, is an interesting way to imagine Paul Thomas Anderson growing up in the Valley, seeing a lot of celebrities um, with their guards down. These are all big drinkers, as I imagine his dad was too. Um, but a lot of the themes in this film of Magnolia, how much is it drawn from Anderson himself? Because it feels cloying. It feels like one of those first novels where you think, okay, you've just graduated from college and the first book is about you in college and yeah, I mean, your relationship. He's always been pretty upfront about having aspects of his personal life—not his personal life, but his 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 personal experience—and um, certainly the neighborhood and the milieu being set around TV. That's all it's all rooted in his biography, and you can just feel the need, I think, to inflate. So it's not just one story of a difficult father and a wounded son, but it's, you know, every father is difficult and every child is wounded. And it's not just about a reckoning in one household. It's about a reckoning for everyone in the industry and the reign of frogs is going to come and, you know, punish, but also maybe baptize or, or, or save everybody. Um, I see it as a movie that didn't have to be as big as it was. And yet I can't imagine it any other way. Maybe that's the essence of a flawed movie where the flaws are not uh, 
they're not errors. They're not things that could have been done better. Like the flaw is the movie, you know, the, the movie is the flaw. The flaw is the movie. I want to make a movie about 20 main characters and I want to set it in the valley and I want it to end with a rain of frogs. That's the premise of the film is just going to open it up to all kinds of overreaching. Um, yeah. but, there's something to be said, but there's something to be said for that, too. I agree. And I mean, I certainly would rather watch Paul Thomas Anderson strike out than watch Ron Howard bunt to get to first base with a, you know, a, a, a nice, friendly film. I watched, uh, I watched Hillbilly Elegy last night, so I'm with you. <laughs> um, so just for time again, um, Punch Drunk Love was a film I immensely enjoyed. I deeply have, I have an immense amount of antipathy to Adam Sandler. I just haven't enjoyed any of his films. Um, but then just fell in love with him in this film. And I know Anderson absolutely adores him and just sees, sees him as like the human embodiment of Prozac or something <laughs> for anybody who's sad. Um, how did he do that? How did he turn Adam Sandler into such a lovable figure for even those of us that just can't stand oh. him? For the people baffled by the movie, I guess he didn't, right? And uh, I don't think it's a one-time only thing because the guys who wrote the foreword for my book, Josh and Benny Safdie, I thought got an amazing performance out of Sandler and Uncut Gems. Yeah, yeah. So, so not a not a not a totally isolated event, but I think Punch Trunk Love is, as I say, for me, it's the turn where, if we're looking at the actual chronology of, of Anderson's career. He downshifts from ensembles to these solo character studies. And he shows a lot of confidence in just weird, weird storytelling technique. I mean, when you say the plot of Punch Drunk Love out loud, it's really bizarre. When you're watching it, it doesn't feel that way because the focus and the the, the attention and the intensity is such that you're 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 on the movie's wavelength, but you pull back from it and you go like, Well, this guy's trying to start a business selling toilet plungers and he's hijacking frequent flyer points and he's being extorted by a <coughs> phone sex wing run out of Utah. And then he's also falling in love with this woman who might be from another planet. I mean, it's quite strange. And in a weird way, I think Sandler's energy and his odd is his odd man-child thing kind of holds the movie together because in a way it's the most recognizable element. The the feeling in Punch Drunk Love is kind of you're watching an Adam Sandler movie, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like uh, he's so angry and he can't calm down and he can't control himself, but this woman loves him anyway. I mean, that's also a way to describe Happy Gilmore or right. The Wedding Singer. It, it, it's in the pocket of those things. I think the big populist lovable presence of Sandler, even if some people don't love him, I think that for those who, who, who like him, that's what grounds the movie. Because yeah. if anything, the movie around Sandler is way wilder than anything about Sandler himself. And at its heart, it is a very touching love story, too, I found. It was affecting. It, it, it is, and it's made with... Uh, uh, made with a truly romantic spirit. I love the little light in the phone booth going on when he actually reaches her in Hawaii. Yeah. And uh, I love the way that the entire valley seems to glow blue and red for these two people. 
I mean, it's really not so far off from the whimsy of a movie like Amelie, except that it has the kind of weird hard edges that a movie like Amelie can't support because <coughs> it's just so cloyed. Right. And I think Punch Truck Love has that weird, or that wonderful mix, rather, of cloying and kind of frightening that, uh, you know, is, is again, pretty pretty singular feeling. Yeah. Um, before we get to the last film, I was curious, what kind of contact have you had over the years with Paul Thomas Anderson to discuss his films? Well, in the book, there's no interview, and that's the answer to the question, which is not said hmm. in a bad way. With the Coens, I didn't really want to interview them because I think that they work better as structuring absences. And in Anderson's case, we were very, very close to having him do a long interview for the book, but pre-production on his new movie intervened. And then, of course, that got held up because of COVID, and now he's shooting it again. Hmm. So, you know, I had really close relationships with, not relationships, but really close contact with and discussions with all the people who were interviewed in the book. Yeah, And, you know, some emails back and forth with his camp. I know he has the book. I haven't, uh, you know... I haven't had him call me up yet to, to talk about it, but I know that it's been read and I believe enjoyed. But there's an interesting separation of church and state between critics and filmmakers that I think has to exist at some point in the process. I mean, I know that at some point you wanted to talk about Showgirls, and I can say maybe just as a way of segueing to that for a second before going to Phantom Thread so that we don't run out of time, is that I didn't talk to Paul Verhoeven at all what I wrote that book. It was just written as an essay. And so whatever that book does or doesn't do, it has a, an integrity to it that's just, well, this is just what I think. And after that, I did talk to Paul. I mean, I did a couple of screenings of the movie with him and interviewed him about some other things. I was in touch with him a few times. And uh, that was a really interesting experience to see how he reacted to a book on Showgirls without being part of it. And I hope at some point in the future, some version of that will happen with Paul Thomas Anderson. But because you're writing critically, I mean, as a as a critic, you don't really need to talk to the filmmaker to examine the films. And he's also on the record in so many places talking about them that, you know, you can take those quotes or you can take those insights and, and integrate that with what you're doing in your own writing. Right. Yeah, I just thought just for your own curiosity to be stated, it might be quite intriguing to have a conversation. Well, I'm extremely curious because, as you can also imagine, Paul Verhoeven liked the Showgirls book because the book argues Showgirls is very good. (laughs) That did not exactly hurt Paul's feelings, you know? Whereas I think with Anderson, there's some criticism in the movies. And obviously the book is a very beautiful object where his aesthetics are, are being privileged through the way the book looks. But, you know, the chapters on Magnolia or Boogie Nights or some of the other places are a little more critical. So, you know, I hope he reads it and takes it in the spirit that it's meant, which is, you know, serious criticism comes out of respect. Right. So Phantom Thread, I, I believe you said, was your one of your favorite It and the Master. Um, well, do you, do, you, do you like it as well? Oh, I love it. I think it is my favorite. I mean, I'm not saying it's the best, but I think it's my favorite of, of his work. It's quite a it's quite a wonderful film. Yeah, quite a wonderful film. Very funny, you know. Where I think the severity of it is what's funny. 
yeah. the, the, the severity is the satire. It's it's not nearly as uh, precious and chic and kind of up its own ass as it looks. It's really kind of down and dirty as a relationship uh, comedy, as a romantic comedy. And uh, I think it has just the extraordinary central performance by Vicky Krebs. I think she's amazing. And what an interesting genesis for the film also, that Anderson gets sick and his wife, the SNL star, Maya, God, what's your Rudolph. last name? Rudolph, I'm sorry. Yeah. Who I absolutely adore as on screen. Um, boy, she's funny. And all her stuff on Kamala Harris right now on yeah. SNL is so inspired. Um, but being caretaken by his wife with, with his kids running around, um, he just became aware of this feeling of how much he loved her and this recognition of, of self-awareness about um, who he is when he's healthy versus when he goes back into this state of needing caretaking, uh, inspiring this film, how that leads to going back in time <laughs> dressmaker Reginald Woodcock and the House of Woodcock, I mean, blows my mind, but boy, it was just such a delightful place to go. And in some ways, I don't want to say that it felt like his most fully realized film, but I felt like there is no more referencing. It's a bit like Kubrick in, in uh, Clockwork Orange when Alex walks into the record shop and you see two, an album of 2001. Yeah. I'm now referencing myself. I'm now beyond <laughs> the other people I've yeah, well, that, from. And- that's a that's a that's a that's a good comparison, and that is exactly I think what Kubrick was doing in in that movie again with more humor than his dissenters. Granted, it's so funny reading Kale on Clockwork Orange, and she just you know she 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 gets some of it, but the humor that just sailed right over her head. Um, yeah. For for Phantom Thread, I mean, he he is kind of doing his own thing. I think it's very personal if he's to be believed it has an autobiographical aspect in a very self-deprecating way where i think he's looking at the male virtuoso and the male genius and sort of saying you know ala shania twain this, this does not impress me much um <laughs> and he's doing it through a female voice that isn't just musical or narrational but through a female subjectivity which is something that you also had David Fincher eventually build to in a movie like Panic Room or especially in Gone Girl, right? Where mm-hmm. the, 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 the accusations of misogyny early on are not boundless. I think they're true. And he responds to it through the way he you know, creates his protagonist. But I think Phantom Thread is this incredible reversal from these studies of obsessive, lonely male characters to a movie about a female protagonist because Reynolds Woodcock is not the main character of Phantom Threat. No. At all. He is someone who she sees and wants and has feelings about, but the movie is from her eyes. They're scenes from his point of view, but I think she is the narrational uh, locus of the movie. And just for that alone, I think it's an interesting sort of, uh, you know, peak for him or an interesting culmination. And, uh, yeah, to me, a film that is just beautifully controlled on every level, very funny, and very satisfying. Yeah, 
Sorry, it, go ahead. It, has, it just has a wonderful feeling of pieces locking into place by the end. Yeah, the women stand out to me so much so. I mean, the as you say, the central protagonist is just luminous from beginning to end. But the sister character of Daniel Day-Lewis is so funny and so yes, it's so well played. And then this moment of the mother emerging from the photograph into the room of the sick woodcock, um, I found so moving. And it seems so personal um, from Anderson in such a raw, open-hearted way. I was really it, gobsmacked by it. It is moving. And it's like something out of, as I wrote, it's like something out of Benwell or or Metal de Oliveira, this sort of... Uh, this 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 very matter of fact phantom presence and moving and sensitive and universal that idea I think that when we are at a low point we wish to be mothered but it's also mm. so funny you know Reynolds has one bad stomach ache and then he has a near death experience the next morning he's like please marry me you know it's funny yeah. when you when you say it out loud it's a wonderful kind of satire of male I think male vulnerability and commitment phobia and the idea that, you know, we all kind of want to be looked after and, and, and marry our mothers that we resent that this idea of resenting, you know, women for getting older and becoming more maternal. And, and at the same time, it's what we, it, it's the kind of stereotyping and typing that people get driven towards. Yeah. And I think, and I think that in the end, it's such a wonderfully cozy portrait of marriage and, and of compromise. That even and I, if it's perverse, it's quite even-handed. I think, and it's also interesting because I, I'm reminded of a couple of films. Also, that, you know, filmmakers who get branded as misogynistic, um, Hitchcock with Vertigo. I don't know how anybody can watch that film and not think that he's being critical about the male character. I don't know how anybody thinks that this is a yeah. guy who's defending that male gaze. <laughs> Um, no, and, certainly not defending it, although he, he identifies with it in a way that that's where the power comes from. Sure. Because he shows, he shows you where the urge for it comes from. But yeah, I agree, it's not endorsing it. And same, same with, I read some, some reviews from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where they were talking about the Bruce Lee character and just saying, oh God, Tarantino, just <sighs> dismissing this guy. And I thought, you don't think he's being critical of Brad Pitt having a dream about what he wished happened with an Asian American who's a burgeoning superstar? Like, I, I just don't understand how we conflate the character with the filmmaker so readily and with so so little pause. Right. Well, and the 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 great thing about that movie for Tarantino is spaciousness, where there's a lot of different ways to read the different the different fantasies and daydreams and a lot of different ways to read what he's actually doing with history because that last scene where the, the, the Manson kids come to the house is it's a rerouting of history, but it's also a restaging of exactly what happened. Right. Mm, Even right. just down to the, the, you know, how many men and how many women are involved. I mean, yeah, that's, that's Tarantino being a very smart filmmaker. I think uh, your reading is very, very correct to me, and uh, you know, it's it, this is it's not meant to impose an ending on the conversation. But I do, in the afterward, talk about Tarantino and Anderson together on stage, without belaboring the comparisons between them. I think they're very different 
it's not a surprise to me that Anderson liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much because it has some of that openness and sensitivity that his own movies might have. Yeah. He talks about the, the light sequence where the lights are coming on at all the Hollywood Hills restaurants. And he told Tarantino he thought it was the most beautiful thing that he'd ever filmed. And in this case, I agree with Paul Thomas Anderson. I think that's one of the most beautiful sequences Tarantino's ever made. Yeah. No, I found, I, I, I really enjoyed Tarantino's early stuff and then it kind of fell off for me. But then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is just a film that I can revisit a lot because you can, like Vertigo, it's just like Vertigo in terms of I can just follow that car around San Francisco and I get <laughs> sleepy, but it's not because I'm bored. It's just, I just want to rewind it and just stay in that car for a couple hours driving around 1950s San Francisco. And it feels the same way with Brad Pitt driving around the Los yeah. Angeles of that era. The, 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 the stretch of that movie that is Pitt uh, fixing, the, fixing the roof, driving home, making his dinner, and putting on whatever he's watching is about as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, then, uh, I, then, yeah no, sorry, go on, go on. No, I was just to say, um, I know you have to go, but I just wanted to finally quickly touch upon Showgirls, maybe just for yeah. a minute. Um, please, please defend what is revered in many circles as one of the worst films of all time, starring Jesse Spano from, you're two years younger than me, but I mean, we got a lot of Jesse Spano, I'm imagining, in a similar way on Saved by the Bell as we were in high school. Um I, I find this film just as funny as RoboCop or Starship Troopers, but boy, it was hated. And I, it's one of the funniest films to rewatch for me. I mean, at this point, at this point, the little anecdote I like to tell about Showgirls is that when my, so my book came out in 2014, and we did a lot of screenings of the movie. I mean, not that many, but at least three or four in Toronto. And I went to New York and I did one in, uh, in Florida. I'm very lucky to get to promote that book, right? And what would end up happening after the screening is someone would come up to the book signing and it happened every time I showed it. One person would come up and it would usually be, I mean, it wasn't always the same age, but it would usually be someone, let's say, a little younger than me. And they'd say, okay, like, I want to read your book. I heard everything you said on stage, but why did anyone think this was bad? Hmm. And it's very telling because and in the book, I try and I try and be reasonable. I mean, I, it is a completely understandable thing for a lot of reasons why that movie did so badly. It has to do with the feelings towards the filmmakers and the cultural moment and the extremity of the movie and the extravagance of the movie. And who writes film criticism and for what audience they're writing. And I mean, I, I, I won't just say I could write a book on why people didn't like it. I mean, I have written a book on why people didn't like it. <laughs> but I also think that while it's very valid and understandable that that movie flopped, it's equally valid to say that not that it was ahead of its time, but that the truths that are in Showgirls are so eternal that when some of the context of mid-90s lifted, will be recognized for what it is, which is not an I love the 90s punchline or a movie that's fun because it's dated, but a movie that is just absolutely correct about a lot of the things that happen in movies and a lot of the things that happen in reality. 
And it is a movie that could have been made in 1933. It just wouldn't have had as much nudity in it. But it is a movie that you could make in the 30s, and it's a movie that you could make now, and a movie that they did happen to make in 1995 that is exceptionally uh, apt about ambition and about entertainment as an industry and the commodification of bodies and how people are complicit kind of in their own corruption. And like for all of Verhoeven's other films, when his movies are about violence, people recognize them as satire. When they're about sex, it makes people go crazy. And there's something pretty revealing about that. Well, we have to do a show on Verhoeven another day because he's one of my absolute favorite directors. But he, 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 is, he is a legitimate contender, I think, for the, for the filmmaker whose reputation is going to improve the most with, with time passing, and it kind of already has. There was that piece that came out last year or earlier this year about Starship Troopers as the great Trump-era movie. And wow. often, I'll, often I'll read things where people will say, you know, this movie represents this political zeitgeist, and I roll my eyes because I think that's lazy criticism sometimes. But in Verhoeven's case, every time some new Trump cabinet member was introduced or someone got fired or some, I mean, even something like the Four Seasons landscaping thing yesterday, sure, my, my, my brain just goes to Verhoeven. And not because he's stupid, but because his movies are about the subject of stupidity in a way that, uh, I think few filmmakers have ever have ever grasped. As a filmmaker of stupidity, he's a genius. <laughs> Those commercials from RoboCop. <laughs> I know. <Do> you, <laughs> as I say, it's another conversation that I would really enjoy having. But Adam, thank you so much for your time today. This was a real treat, and uh, oh, it was, it was a blast. And thank you. I mean, the, the, the questions are so perceptive and thoughtful not just about Anderson in general but with regards to the book which is appreciated sometimes when you're promoting uh, a book and it's no fault of the people doing the interview they haven't read the book right it's more just like so you did this what's this right and uh, it was really nice to talk to someone who obviously is knowledgeable and smart about the movies uh, as well it was really fun well and as somebody loves these films it was uh, amazing just to get your insights into it because it added a lot to the experience for me Sure. Um, thank you so much. We'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. I mean, hopefully this won't be the last time we chat. Thank you so much. All right. Well, great talking and look forward to talking again. I'd love to talk some Antonioni and the Passenger also because... Um, we we talk, 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 talk anytime you like. Great. Great stuff. Okay. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby. Myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.